Welcome to episode 22 of 1530. Today we're going to be discussing win percentage of total points and the impact that that has on a tennis match and how actually you can win a match without winning a majority of the points played with the unique scoring of tennis unlike other sports like soccer or basketball. We're going to discuss some of the unique matches that actually happened this year too in particular. So we'll discuss that as well as kind of what's going on on the tour, how the rest of the year is shaping up as they go through um, the Asian swing right now, and then they'll finish back up in London for the World Tour Finals, at least for those top eight guys. Welcome to 1530. Now introducing your hosts, Ben and Matt. I'm going to be starting you all out with the stat of the day today, switching things up a little bit. So Ben, stat of the day, as you mentioned, is focused around the percentage of points needed uh, to be won in order to have a a good chance of winning the match. So I guess my question for you is, what do you think has been the average amount of points percentage-wise won by the number one player in the world from 91 to 2016 in the open era? Ooh, that's a really good question. <clears throat> it's going to be in the 50s, but the low 50s, because I know once you get into like that 53, maybe, it's going to be too too hard to sustain. So I'd guess 51 or 52. Final answer, I'll go 51%. Oh, that's pretty good. Yeah, it's so it? 55%. That's the start of the day. 55, dang it. 55%, okay. right. yeah. Which, I don't know, I guess uh, you're a lot better with these numbers than I am, because I was thinking it would be, have to be way higher than that, right? Yeah. But we go back to this, you know, tennis is a game of inches and a game of really there are a few critical points throughout the match. And you only have to win 10% more points than your opponent to really have, you know, to be the number one player in the world. <laughs> no, so that's well, the well, 5%. Like, well, 5%, right? Because it's 55. Well, yeah, that's true. Because you're going, yeah. yeah, that's true. Yep. So that, that was crazy to me to, to look at that. Um, and I, I was thinking around on uh, Ultimate Tennis Stats um, just to look at this for a little bit. I was like, well, maybe, you know, um, maybe their service games are really short, but their return games are really long, things of that nature. But if you look at the return to service points ratio um, for, you know, who, who leads in that, and career-wise, uh, Roger Federer actually has the best return to service points ratio at 1.071. So he's basically playing half and half his points. So hmm. that's interesting. He's winning, you know, winning those points mostly equal on his on both sides of his of the court. I don't know. That was interesting to me. Yeah, that is that's, that's super interesting. Especially because sometimes we we like to focus a lot on how well you return. And then so numbers pop out really for Rafa and for Djokovic. But if you go on the serve side of things, you know, you don't necessarily, necessarily see those guys at the top. You see more Isner and those type of guys who maybe right. don't have the return game. And so like, well, it's clearly got to be the return points. That's what determines it. But Federer, right, like you're saying he's made a living of doing both actually really well, especially, you know, his serve's kind of underrated. I remember especially when he went up against Roddick in that 2009 final. And Roddick was acing a bunch, but Federer actually served in more aces in that match. Um, so his serves underrated. He he returns well, but obviously he can serve clutch when he needs to, and I think that's that's what's helped him. He's been very balanced over his career, like you're saying. 
Right. Yep. Rafa comes in at third at, with the points ratio. And who, uh, who was second on that list? Andre Agassi. Agassi. Ah, mm -hmm. interesting. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. Is yeah, very good return game. Yeah. So if you were to look at, let's see, if we look at um, total points, one percentage for for career, Rafa has the lead right now with fifty four point five one percent, and then Joe and Fed are right behind him at fifty four point three six and fifty four point one seven. So they're okay. right there, and then just in twenty nineteen. Uh, Rafa still has the lead, but he's got he's won fifty six point three one percent of his of all the points he's played um, in twenty nineteen, and then again, Joke is right behind him at fifty five percent, and Fed at fifty four point seven four. So again, hanging right around that fifty five percent, and uh, Rafa's a little bit above that right now. But yeah, I thought that was interesting. No, that is that's super fascinating. And that kind of leads in, like you said, what we want to what we want to talk about. We want to talk about win percentage and kind of how it swings, but also just how sometimes, like you said, it's a game of inches. It's unique because you can someone can win the first set or second set pretty easily, and the other guy can come back, kind of like we saw in the U.S. Open final. Kind of was reminded about that that exactly. Even though the match seems like maybe it's won, it's not over till it's over, like Yogi Berra always <laughs> says, right? And so, um, looking through some of the numbers on Ultimate Tennis Stats for I look specifically for the lowest percentage of points won where the person still won the match, if that makes sense. So, for example, if you look at ultimatetennisstats.com, the one, the one match it was in Roland Garros. It's Sanga, who was defeated by Golbis, and Golbis only won 43% of the points, but Sanga won. And that seems a little mind-boggling, and if you're confused, that's, that's fine because actually Golbis – was down two to five and Sanga retired. So we're not going to look at that number there. So it's a little bit extreme, 43%. There's a couple other retirements. Then the next match with the lowest total number of points won, where the person still was able to win the match was on grass. Um, this was in 1997. This was Magnus Norman, who coaches Stan Wawrinka. The, <clears throat> he beat Goran Ivana Ivana Vizic, I totally butchered his name, but Gorn was um, Chilich's coach for a bit. And so pretty interesting. That was on Wimbledon on the grass. And so basically what happened there is just obviously some lopsided sets, tiebreaker, and then it was, excuse me, 14-12 in the fifth. And so Magnus only won 45% of the points, and he went on to win the match. So that's that's pretty crazy, like you're saying, especially when you consider the number one player in the world is winning in the 50s, mid-50s on – on points one, so you can actually win a tennis match winning less than 50% of the points <laughs> as it's shown. And of course, right, what are some of the matches we talked about this year? Do you remember any of the matches this year that were famous for that? Uh, no, I'm not. You have to. Yes. <laughs> so one, I didn't even realize until I looked up the number, but there's one at the U.S. Open. And then there's the famous one at Wimbledon, the Wimbledon final. Uh, better, yes, better one, yeah, yeah better yeah, one more points than Djokovic. Djokovic only won forty eight percent of the points and still won. Was victorious again. There's a lopsided set. Federer won one of the sets six one. Every single set that Joke won, where it went to tiebreak. So let's let's first dive before we get to the Wimbledon match. We've talked about the Wimbledon match quite a bit. I want to look at that. It's the Verdasco Chung match, and so this is one I didn't really pay attention to. I think part of it was because because it was so early on. 
It was the round of 64 at the U.S. Open this year. So Chung, we know Chung, a lot of promise. He made the semifinals of the Australian Open a few years ago, beat Djokovic. He struggled with some foot injuries, though. He struggled with different injuries. He was able to beat Verdasco, which we know Verdasco can be a tricky customer no matter what the surface is. So if we go ahead and look at the numbers, this match, again, was interesting. Verdasco won the first two sets, as you can imagine. They were lopsided, 6-1, 6-2. And then Chung was able to claw back and win the next three sets, 7-5, 6-3, 7-6. So kind of honestly looking like the US Open men's final that we had this year, right? So, But if we look at the numbers here, so Chung was able to be, he went to the net a little bit less than Verdasco, but he was winning 10% more points at the nets. When he got to net, it was a put away, basically. Aces, Verdasco, they basically had the same amount of aces and double faults. First serve in was in the 60s for both of them. So they were both getting quite a few of their first serves. And Chung was slightly better, 4% better overall at winning those first four points. And then on the second serve, Verdasco was significantly better, 15%. So kind of interesting that Chung was able to survive this match with almost identical numbers <laughs> up to this point and not being able to protect a second serve. Um, like I said, net points were were in favor of Chung. Break points were pretty tight. Verdasco converted a little bit more of his, though, converted 6 out of 12 compared to Chung's 4 out of 12, right? Because Verdasco went up with a double break, it looked like, in probably the first and second sets. And then receiving points overall were was almost identical. They were in the mid 30s, 30 foot, 38 and 35%. So kind of a weird match if you look how split the numbers were. They each had were in the 40s on winners, unforced errors. Chung had 10 less about. And then overall total points won. Verdasco won 151 points to Chung's 141 points. So there's one of those weird ones where it's almost two matches, right? You take the first two sets and the last three sets, totally different matches. Now that I'm going through the numbers here. It looks like it's even more lopsided. First two sets, Verdasco is winning 20% more on that first on that second serve. And in the second set, Chung was 0 for 6 on second serve points one. So it's a so is 50% to zero. So very, very different as you go into the third, fourth, and fifth sets. It looks like Chung was able to swing it around on second serves on every set except for the fifth set. And he won it in a fifth set tiebreaker. One of the great things about the US Open. Going to a fifth set, you get that tiebreak at at six all. So I don't know anything anything stand out to you about that match or about the concept in general about you can win fewer points and win the match. No, I think it's just crazy. I don't know of any other sport that <laughs> that's a realistic thing. Um, I I think to me it's interesting, right? On a on a personal level, as we go out and and play some tennis on our for ourselves. Uh, tennis is not a game of perfection in the sense that you have to win every single point. Um, and so to me, looking at these numbers kind of on a macro scale, we can say, all right, well, you know, it's all right that, you know, your opponent's going to hit some good shots. You're going to miss some shots. You know, you don't have to win 90% of the balls that, that get played, you know? And so kind of take some of that emotional, emotional stress or tension out of it that, a lot of times complicates our, our playing ability. We can say, all right, you know, <laughs> we missed yeah. that point, but that's all right. You know, we've got a, a large margin for error. We just need, you know, 55% or whatever we need to, to keep going. And so I think right. that's something that personally for us as, as players, instead, more than just to even watching, we can 
use that to help us out a little bit. Yeah, and I, I agree. There's kind of a psychological element. Some of the some of the best players, right? They don't only they don't only have their physio who's helping them with their physical body and their training. They also a lot of them have mental uh, fitness coaches or whatever they call them that that they're able to help a sports psychologist, I guess would be the proper term, right? And they're able to help them psych psychologically have an edge in the game. And that could be something like you're saying where, you know what, it's okay even if you lose half the points, right? You need to win the right points and stay positive. I think, you know, there's yep. a lot of power in positive thinking, but it's just amazing that, right, that Djokovic was able to stay strong. The whole crowd's rooting against him right. with, with Federer and Djokovic happened to win the right points in the tie breaks. He was clutch. Even yeah. though Feder, you know, beat him in a lopsided set, I don't think I don't know if Feder's ever got him in a six-one set, at least in a slam. So yeah, he was able to stay tough, and I think that's 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 good for whether you're a player or whether you're, you know, watching your favorite player. That anything can happen. So right. and it's a well, it's a I, great it's a great sport for comebacks, especially. Yeah, I agree. I think that clutchness is it's hard to quantify, right? Especially the the mental aspect of this game. It's a real aspect, and it's. You can't really quantify that, but in you can see glimpses of it being able to to really be measured in things like that match, right? I mean, yeah. by all statistical measures, he should have lost. Joke should have lost, but uh, mm -hmm. somehow he, you know, <laughs> yeah, exactly like you said, won the points that really mattered, and you know, that's why they play all five sets if you need them. Yeah, which is interesting. I don't know if you were able to catch any of the Labor Cup. I just caught some of the highlights, but it was fun. For, for our viewers or for our listeners, Labor, Labor Cup is something put on by Roger Federer initially. And basically they pit some of the best players in, in Europe versus basically the world. It's a lot of, you know, the U.S., Australia, anybody else but from Europe. And it's kind of a fun competitive uh, environment. Bjorn Borg is the team captain for Team Europe. And uh, John McEnroe is the team captain for Team World. And they kind of compete. There are some singles matches. There's doubles matches. And there's the team the team side of it, which I guess you get in Davis cup, but it's just a weekend of fun. And it's cool. Cause each day goes Friday through Sunday, each day, the matches are worth more points. So even if you're down a lot on your, on Sunday, as far as the team points are concerned, you can, you can totally come back. Cause I think matches are worth three points that last day. And so anyways, it was really fun. It was cool to see Federer and Nadal coaching young guys like Tsitsipas and Pognini and giving their tips. And I know a lot of it was for entertainment value, but it was cool to see, you know, their, their mental aspect of the game. A lot of it was just, Hey, stay positive. You know, you, you got to take it to him or, or just like you said, it's okay. If he hits a good shot, you just got to keep the pressure on him. It was interesting to see the things that they said, but it made me think about just now as we were talking, how much, like how valuable coaches are. Cause they were able to do on, on court coaching and right. That's something in the men's game that we don't yeah. get. I wonder how much more valuable a coach would be like a really good, especially mental type coach if you were allowed on match coaching, like when Federer's going in that tiebreaker, if he was able to have his coach, no, maybe not Federer because he's pretty mentally tough dude, but I don't know. Some of these other young players, maybe they would be able to help them. Yeah, for sure. And so I wonder if we'll ever see a rule change that way. Maybe maybe not, but Labor Cup, they sure like to experiment with with different rules of the game. Uh, that'd be interesting. You can imagine your coach having uh, some live update stats on the match and saying, no. Oh. You're doing this poorly and this well, so stick to that. Yeah, one. exactly. They could bring the stats into the game. That's a good point. Yeah. yeah, let's go ahead and look at the the numbers from that world of match. We've covered them before, but uh, just interesting to dive into them again. So go ahead and pull out the stats here. 
So for aces, Federer, letter, you know, like we talked about, underrated server. He's 25 aces to Novak's 10 over five sets. Double faults were uh, Fed had six, Joke had nine. So really, Joke's plus minus on aces to double faults ratio is only plus one. Fed's was plus 19. First serve points in 63% to Novak's 62%. So almost identical. Win percent on first serve. Better is so good at this stat. 79% to Djokovic, 74. Win percent on second service, 51% Fetter, 47 for Djokovic. 47, that's, especially for Novak, that's not where he'd want to be. If you saw that number, you would have thought he probably lost. And as you can see the trend, right, all the numbers are favoring Fed so far. Net points won, 78% for Fed, 63% for Novak. And Fed went to net 65 times, quite a few times. Break points won, Fetter, 7 of 13. And Djokovic, 3 of 8. Receiving points won. Federer, 36%. Novak's, 32%. So Novak, again, not the returner that we know. Didn't quite get the numbers that we expect him to see. And that leaves Federer with 94 winners to Novak's 54. So almost a 40, 40 more winners. Exactly 40 more winners. Unforced errors. Joke had 10 fewer. So that was one thing where he did better. 62 to 52. And total points won. 218 for Fed. 204 for Djokovic. Uh, Feder did cover some more distance at, and we talked a lot about distance last match, but he covered about a half a meter extra per point at 13.8 meters, just 13.3 meters per point. Which, how does that compare? I want to look just to give us some side by side comparison. We were talking about Rafa and Medvedev distance covered per point. Of course, now it's in feet because it's U.S. Open, so that's lovely. Uh, I guess I converted divided by three, so it looks like it's about and converted. It's 20 meters per point for Medvedev in the U.S. Open final compared to um, a little over that. So maybe like 20, 23-ish meters for Nadal or 22-ish meters for Nadal. So they covered significant, even though it felt like Novak and Roger there, he was probing with the slice and they were all over the court. Nadal and Medvedev covered a significant more amount of distance. And they also went five sets. So Interesting match. Like we said, the numbers, they all look good for Federer, but in the end, it didn't matter. It was one of these few matches where the person who won more points lost. Yep, yep. Let me see here. So I have like out of my ranking here. So I just wanted to see as far as compared to the rest of the matches. Let's see. So Federer, where's he at? So I wanted to compare it to that. I remember, like I mentioned, the 43% or the 45% really with no retirements where Federer sits against Djokovic or with that match against um, the others. So it looks like it's number 80, 80, 82-ish. So it's the 82nd match. Of course, there's others with the exact same percentage. But, you know, these are there's not very often that you see see a match like that or a match where even – the winner wins even fewer points. So this is like for all of tennis history, you know, ultimate tennis stats goes all the way back until they were tracking stats. So there's matches in the eighties, nineties. So pretty rare event that we witnessed. And we, again, we saw two matches because Verdasco won or uh, won more points as well over Chung. And they were both, I believe at 48.3%. So 2019, kind of a weird, kind of a weird year. One was in a final one was in the second round. You never know what you're going to get. Matchups are obviously a huge Huge part of that. So Matt, let's uh, let's I guess just kind of preview for the tour. What's going on the rest of the year, and uh, what 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 players are you uh, are you watching? 
Uh, that's a great question. We've got what Beijing and Tokyo going on right now. That's got uh -huh. some uh, some of the key players playing. Um, I guess uh, what do we have? Shanghai coming up, and then the AP, ATP. What do they call it? The World Tour. Yep, so, I believe there's Paris in between, but most of the top there, players think they skip right. it. And so, like you're saying, it's going to be World Tour Finals will be the the last big one. So we'll see what happens. I know. Um, I mean, obviously, I'm always watching Rafa. The last I heard is that he didn't play some of his labor labor, labor cup matches because of a wrist problem. Correct. So uh, some sort of injury. I didn't know what it was. Yeah. yeah, yeah. He's got something he's working on and making sure that he's good to go for the major tournaments. So. I'm curious to see when he comes back and plays. I know, I don't know. After the U.S. Open, I feel like it's a grind, especially for Rafa. And so, it wouldn't surprise me to see him drop out of. Uh, honestly, it wouldn't surprise me if he dropped out of the ATP and just really made sure he was ready for the Aussie Open. Um, I, as we were talking about earlier off the off the air, Rafa's only what 640 points behind Joke right now for the mm -hmm. number one spot. Um, but I don't know. I mean, I think Rafa probably covets that more than the other members of the big three, but, uh, I, I don't know. I think that grand slams are too important for him right now. And I would not be surprised to see him not play any others. I wouldn't be surprised to see him play, you know, at least the ATP, that final match. Yeah. Uh, I, I guess I agree to some extent. I think he probably does see a window to get the number one and he, I don't think he'll sacrifice his body for it, but there could be an opening, you know, Djokovic is back or trying to recover from injury. He's playing well at Tokyo so far, but yep. really hasn't played anyone yet. So I think if there's an opportunity for Nadal, um, he'll take it. He might rest Shanghai, but he's never won an ATP World Tour final. I know that's one hit against him on his resume. And so who knows? Maybe he'll sit out Shanghai to try to be ready for the World Tour finals. But maybe I agree ultimately his body is um, – he's said that before. That's the most important thing. He's not afraid to rest if he needs to. So we'll see. Uh, but I think it's definitely a doable target for number one, depending on, it depends on how joke plays, right? If joke sweeps all the tournaments, it's not going to matter, but yeah. Um, yeah, I, I'm interested to watch. So that the, I think the, the Beijing is kind of an interesting tournament. A lot of good players there. Murray made his comeback. He beat his first top, top guy. Basically he beat Berrettini seven, six, seven, six. And this was just coming after coming off a loss to Alex de Manure. Amazing Australian player that beat him in three sets. And he he plays Dominic team next. That's gonna be a really interesting test for Murray. Team's the top seed playing some good tennis. And then also looking at a close eye on Cici Pas and Zverev. They're in the same uh, side of the draw, both playing good tennis. I really want to see Zverev, right? He won the ATP World Tour Finals last year. And the year before that, it was Dimitrov. So oh, I you know, I'll see if uh, if Djokovic and Federer, these guys are really getting tired at the end of the year. Maybe we could see Zverev have a resurgence or maybe even Tsitsipas. So uh, I would say the World Tour Finals, Novak's the favorite, but from there, who knows what can happen, right? Hmm. I, I, think, I think that'll be yeah. really interesting. Because like you said, it's a long dry, long grind. The uh, They've already been playing on hardcore for a while, and it's hardcore the rest of the way pretty much, including yeah. some indoor courts. And it gets tiring uh, for these guys with injuries and stuff, so. We'll see what happens. It will be interesting, for sure. Yep, I'm just excited for I'm just excited for Murray. So hopefully he can continue to be healthy, make a comeback. I I was just looking through some of the stats, and they were saying, so Murray, right? We know he has two Olympic gold medals. That's actually the most gold medals for any male male player, which is 
Impressive. So he sets a set a record right there. Maybe we can see a big four. If not, the big three is always entertaining. So, well, he wasn't sure he was even going to be able to play again. So the fact that he's right. out there winning matches, it's it's great. It's great. It's amazing. See. Yeah, it's it's great for the sport. Fans obviously um, always enjoy Murray. So. Yeah, as always, uh, feel free to visit us at cognitionsphere.com. And our theme music is brought to us by Kevin McLeod with extras from his song, Cool Rock. And until next mention, time, we'll oh, see you on sorry, the Ben. Go ahead. I just, I just need to mention uh, those stats that I pulled for total point uh, percentage one. I got them from a guy named Craig O'Shaughnessy. You should go look up his website. It has some interesting statistics. He's involved in a lot of the new age data collection that's involved in, in tennis. So I just wanted to throw his name out there so that we weren't just stealing his numbers. That's right. Okay. Citing sources. <laughs> Thank you for that. Yep. And until next time, we'll see you guys on the course.